All right, guys, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Now, uh, we've had some uh, guest speakers come through the last few weeks. We had uh, Mrs. Ron Slaven a few weeks ago. We had uh, L.B. Vargas preached uh, a while back. And then my friend Simon uh, preached like last, last Sunday when a lot of you guys weren't here. Um, Simon preached. And each one of them, I think, has said this one phrase. They, the passage they got, they've said something like, this is the most important passage in Romans. Or this is the most important passage in the Bible, is what Kim said when she preached a few weeks ago. And I'm not going to argue with that. Um, but today's passage, today's passage, I'm not sure if it's the most important one in Romans, but it is a really important passage in my life. Uh, when I was in a seminary, um, if you know what that is, that's the school you go to after you go, when you figure out what you really want to do. Um, you go to seminary, and it's, it's, they educate you for hopefully working in a church setting like this. And I was in seminary, and there was a class we had in our first semester called Spiritual Life at Dallas Theological Seminary. And this class, um, I didn't know what to expect. I just thought, okay, I know what, you know, intro to theology. I know what Bible study methods and hermit, I know what that is, but what is spiritual life? What is this class? And uh, this class ended up being, for me, like a church service because most classes in seminary, you, you, you go and you get it, and, and you, you walk out sometimes just in awe of God and who God is. But most of the time, you walk out with a headache and wondering, what did we just talk about? Um, but spiritual life was a class where the, it was like a 10-week class, and the whole thing was just like church. Like, I would walk out and go, I think I just, like, felt a warm fuzzy in the back of my head. Like, I just I feel, I feel like the pitter-patter of my heart, you know, as, as God's convicted me of some things. And so this class called Spiritual Life, much of this class was focused in Romans chapter 6 through 8. And for the first time in my life, I saw some things I never saw before. And so I'm giving you guys, hopefully, about a 10-year head start from where I was when I was in seminary. And uh, so quick overview of what we've talked about. We talked about uh, Romans uh, 1 to 5 so far. And this, in this section of Romans, you're going to hit up at the top so we don't have moving images. Click that X up at the top there, Dan. It'll get rid of that moving image in the background. Top left. Yeah, there you go. And then go back to the slide that we have there. Yeah. I don't want you guys to get, like, hypnotized by the moving clouds and stuff. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so Romans 1 to 5 has been about what God has done for us through the gospel. This is why it has sounded like almost every talk has been a version of the same thing <laughs> over and over again. Um, but that's by design. Romans 1 to 5, it took Paul five thick theological chapters to communicate to us this great truth in the gospel. This is what God has done for us in the gospel. And then Romans 6 to 8 is going to be what God will do in us through the gospel. And so now we're taking the truths from up in the clouds, the abstract, we're now getting into life. This is how this relates to life. And so this chapter 6 is where this series will take a little bit of a turn uh, towards, um, I say pragmatic, but I don't, I don't like that word, and so I'm not going to use it. But it's going to feel like it relates a little bit more to your everyday life as we, as we go through Romans chapter 6, uh, all the way through chapter 8. Uh, it tells us how to experience the gospel. This is the breakthrough we've been talking about throughout the series. We've been saying things like, for some of you, you may have just come to know Christ recently, um, and that was a spiritual breakthrough for you. For many of you, may have been, may, maybe you've grown up in the church your whole life, 
but God wants to do a spiritual breakthrough as the gospel becomes more clearly focused in your life and you begin to understand what this thing really means and the implications of it in your life. So this is what we're hoping for and praying for as we go through uh, these next uh, couple of chapters. Um, a quick review from last week. I'll give you one little phrase from Simon's talk, Romans 5.20. Here's what it said. It said, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is unmerited favor um, with God. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What that means is that um, when, when we sin, he's, he's communicating this idea that when you, when, when you and I sin, grace covers over these sins, which may not sound like a foreign concept if you've been raised in the church, but I want to show you this morning how this is a really, really foreign concept to many, many people. And so this is true. Where sin increases, grace abounds. Grace increases. But I want you to focus on one thing. Can you see where this might lead? If someone hears the, the statement, okay, wherever sin increases, grace increases. Do, do you know the next question they might ask? The next question they might ask you is, okay, so um, if there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, I get that. But the next question that might come from them is what we find in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And this is the question the Roman Christians had. This is the question they're asking Paul, and here's what they're saying to Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You can hear that that's the question they're going to ask when they hear this idea that where sin increase, grace increases. Their thinking went like this. Okay, if, if we sin and we get more grace, if when, when sin increases, grace increases, and grace is good, right? Grace um, shows us who God is and shows us his compassion, his love, his mercy. And so if more sin equals more grace, then what's wrong with that? What's wrong with more sin? So they're choosing to, they're, they're thinking through, like, hey, if, if, if salvation can't be earned, if salvation is not based on works, then why does obedience matter? And so if we tell people they're saved by grace, won't people just go crazy into sin? What motivation are they really going to have to obey if this whole thing is just based on free grace? What motivation will they have? If our good works can't earn salvation, then why be good at all? This is actually something that other religions find puzzling about Christianity because every other religion on the face of the earth is a works-based salvation. I read a book by J.D. Greer many years ago. We're having our New York City mission trip team read it this year. And he was a missionary to um, Saudi Arabia for a few years before he came back to the States to plant churches. And he says in his book that grace is one of the concepts that Muslims do not understand about Christianity at all. They don't get it. They're like, wait, so you're saying that you can do all these horrible things in life and then put your faith and trust in Jesus and his work for you on the cross, and that's it, and, and, and you're good, like you're, you're now with God? And they don't understand this concept. This is foreign to someone who believes in a works-based salvation because it doesn't seem right. How, how is that a just God? How is that fair for God to be that way? In fact, uh, many before we had kids, uh, about eight, eight, nine years ago, I would have some guys over to my house on Thursday nights occasionally just to have, we'd, we'd talk, we'd study the Bible together and talk. And I had this group of high school guys over occasionally at my house. And this one guy, um, he said to me, he said, you know, I'm having trouble understanding, like, what, 
you know, once you've prayed the prayer of salvation or once you've come to know Christ, he said, well, why should I obey? And he was a kid that was struggling. I know he was struggling with his, in his life um, at the time. And it was a very real question he was asking. He was asking if, 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 if I've got salvation and it's all based on grace, then why should I obey? And I tried to explain this to him. So hopefully this morning will be my explanation of what I said to him many, many years ago. But this is a very real struggle, whether it's, for him, it was a conscious struggle. For you, it might be a conscious struggle, or maybe it's a subconscious struggle. And it's just in the back of your head, and you're just thinking, like, well, you know, you're not consciously saying it because you think it's wrong to say it that way. But for you, it might be a subconscious struggle that you're having right now as we walk through this. So the big question raised in this section of Romans 6 is, how does the gospel change our life? How does the gospel actually change us and penetrate our minds and our hearts? How does it actually work out in your life? And this is what we're discussing as we go through Romans 6, verses 1 to 14 today. I want you to think about this. What is our motivation or what is the, in the church today, what is the communicated motivation that people put before you for, for godly living or for obedience? When I was in high school at my church, I never heard what you're going to hear today. But what I often heard in my church growing up was, life will just go better for you if you obey. This is what they told me. Life will work out better if you don't lie and don't cheat and don't steal and don't have sex before marriage. And, and yeah, there's some, there's some truth to that, I guess. But if that's your only motivation for obedience, it's not going to last or if you are obeying, it's just going to be a joyless existence. You're not going to truly see the reason why the gospel impacts and changes your life. You're just not. And so they would stand before us. This one, uh, in, I think it was eighth grade we had, it was when the, um, the disease uh, HIV and AIDS like, had just kind of come onto the scene, and everyone's freaking out. Um, and they, they put this nurse in front of us who was a Christian woman. I went to a Christian school, and, and she just told us um, all these fear-based tactics for why you should wait for marriage. And hey, that, might, that might scare a kid into obedience. It scared me into obedience for a while, right? You know, you're going to get pregnant. You're going to get an STD. You're going to get this. You're going to get that. But listen, that kind of motivation doesn't last because if I know teenagers— if you combine fun with risky behavior, what are they thinking? Like, they're like, yeah, sign me up. So very often, standing before you and saying, let me tell you all the risks involved with ungodly living, you're going to be like, awesome, sign me up. That's how you think. So this is not going to be motivation enough for you to, to really, truly obey Christ in your life. So um, I want you to get into uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. Look at this uh, verse. Paul's response to this dilemma is, verse 2, he says, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Here's what he's saying. If you really understand, if you really get the gospel, you wouldn't even ask that question. You wouldn't ask the question like, hey, what can I get away with? What can I do? Um, that is what I want to do. I want to give you a picture here. This is a, 
uh, picture. They put this up earlier on the screen. I'm not sure why they did. I think he thought this was Seth up here on the picture that he saw earlier. But this is actually my wife and I on our honeymoon. Um, I'm not sure what my hair was doing back then, but um, I'm sure Courtney talked me into that. I guess I'm not sure how, but this is in St. John on our honeymoon. And what if, what if, what if my relationship to Courtney went like this? What if it happened this way, where we started dating? We met in like 2001, I think, and uh, we started dating. And what if I, um, you know, fell in love with her and I proposed to her? And then we have the wedding day. We have the honeymoon in St. John, we have, um, we return back after our honeymoon, and uh, what if we're unloading the car, about to go into our new apartment, and what if while we're unloading our luggage, I say to her, hey, well, um, you know, it's been really great, uh, I've got an apartment across town, um, peace out, I'll see you later. I mean, what would my friends say to me, the ones that just came to the wedding? What would everyone say to me in that situation? They would all look at me and say, Dave, you don't understand the nature of marriage. You don't know what marriage is. Like, you have a misunderstanding of what marriage is. If you're asking that kind of question, you don't understand what marriage is all about. And so to be saved and to say, well, well can I just live how I want? shows that we don't understand the nature of the gospel. We don't understand the nature of what it means to be in a relationship with Christ. Because when you marry someone, you become united with them. Your lives become one. You live with them. The same thing happens when you become a Christian. You become one with Jesus. Your life becomes united with him. You share life with him. So we say it this way, life with Christ is a marriage, not just a wedding. Life with Christ is a marriage, not just a wedding. And I know that we've had some events recently. You, you went to a disciple now recently. You've had some, uh, maybe some things through mission trips or whatever. Um, some of you guys have had some powerful experiences in your faith. Maybe you went to a camp and Someone stood before you and said, hey, if you want to become a Christian, come down front and pray this prayer and come to know Jesus tonight. I'm not saying those things are bad. But if you think that, um, I, I refer to those as wedding experiences. That's the wedding. But that's not a marriage. And, and you can't look at these powerful experiences and, and say, all right, well, I did this. I had this little experience back in eighth grade. I'm good. And like the young man I was talking to many years ago and say, now that I've got that, now that I've done, now that I've done the wedding, why can't I just go out and do whatever I want? Because if someone can say that, they're showing they don't understand the nature of the gospel and what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus. So with that, do your uh, first three questions at your tables. All right, I know many of you are just scratching the surface of some of these things, but we're going to get into verses 3 and 4 here in a moment. So look down with me at verse, uh, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism 
into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So big question, what does it mean that we are baptized into Christ Jesus? I'm not, there's some really, really complicated, some deep things. I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I can and then get toward the end of the passage here. But this is not just referring to water baptism. This is referring to an identification with Jesus. What this means, that you are baptized, when you come to faith in Christ, it means that you are baptized spiritually, you're identified with him spiritually. What that means is that the death, the life, the death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus is now applied to you. It's as if it happened to you. This is how God the Father can look at you and say, you are perfect, you're without blemish, not because you really are in real life, but because of his son who really was in real life. And so there's this connection. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, you are baptized spiritually, but then you get baptized physically to show that to the church and to the world. This is why we put you under the water. Like, if you ever think about baptism, um, I've often thought this, like, what does an unbeliever think when they kind of drive by a baptism? This, is, this looks weird. Bunch of weirdos going out to the woods with a creek, you know, and we're going to have a little ritual, and it just looks strange. When you, if you detach what it means from what it actually means, like, it, it just looks strange. Like, we're going to play some songs, we're going to have you share some words of what Christ means to you, and then it's dunk. What is that? But it is a physical, symbolic representation physically of what's happening to you spiritually. We dunk you because we, we believe it, it, it depicts this burial and this resurrection that you are now identified with Christ in if you call yourself a Christian. This is what it means to be baptized into Christ. There's a spiritual element and there is a physical element as you're identified with him. We are united with Christ. We're, un we're one with him. And all through uh, verses, if you go back to verse 2 even, in verse 2 all the way through 4, there's all this talk about death and baptism. What does it actually mean? In verse 2 it says, we are dead to sin. And I want to just give you this morning a depiction of what it means. First of all, what it does not mean that we are dead to sin. Here's what it does not mean. Because you're going to read that as a, especially as a new Christian, you're going to think, it says I'm dead to sin, so I shouldn't struggle with sin anymore, right? That's a misunderstanding of what this means. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean that we no longer want to sin. I've heard preachers tell me as I was growing up, you know, when you become a Christian, the more mature you become in your faith, um, the less you will want to sin. Adults in the room, is that true? No. <laughs> I used to envision spiritual growth as this like incline, like a ramp, like you just become a better and better and better and better person as you go. And I'm 39 and I still suck. It's true. In fact, I describe sanctification like this. It's not an incline. It's not an incline that you climb. That's, that induces pride. But it is a continual realization of how sinful I really am. That is sanctification. And when you can continually go to the cross with that and, and, and know that 
there's grace as sin increases. As my knowledge of my own sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Grace abounds. And so, yeah, I might, I might struggle with certain things like less than I used to, but there's just other things now. <laughs> there's just other things that I just can't seem to get away from. So there's this constant battle and struggle with sin that we experience. So it does not mean that we no longer want to sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that we should die to sin. Paul's not saying that, okay, um, uh, go to my next slide here. He's not saying, um, okay, that you should, you, you guys need to go and, and, and be dead to sin. And, and good luck with that. Go, go do that. He's not saying that you should die to sin. He's saying it's already been done. He's saying it's been done. And then thirdly, he's not saying that sin is slowly weakening in us. He's not saying that either. So you might ask the question, okay, what is he saying then? (laughs) The suspense is killing us. Being dead to sin is the result of something that's done to us, not something we have to do for ourselves. It's something that's done for us. And again, I know this, all, all this sounds nice, um, but how does it really affect us in life? I want you to continue looking at verses. We're going to look at verses 5 to 11 now. Look at verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, there are so many things I could preach a sermon on in this passage. It is so thick, but I've got to just focus on a couple of things here. Look at verses 6 and 7, a couple phrases. He says that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And verse 7 says, you've been set free from sin. Now again, that does not mean you don't struggle with sin. So here's the definition. Being dead to sin means that we're no longer under sin's reign. We're no longer under the ruling reign and power of sin. And I want to show you in a moment how this plays out in life. But so we don't, we don't say no to sin. I mentioned before that when I was in church growing up, the motivation was, well, here's why you should obey. It's because life's going to go better for you if you obey Jesus. Here's why that, why that falls short. Because it doesn't communicate that you're dead to sin. So why should you obey? Why should you live a holy life? Why should you obey? Because you're dead to sin. Your relationship with sin has fundamentally shifted and changed. This is why we obey. This is why we understand what it means when it says, grace reigns, sin no longer reigns over you. I want to depict this. I'm actually going to need, uh, I need to have, uh, I need to have um, three volunteers, male volunteers actually. Don't raise hands, just get up here. I'm not taking permission. 
Um, so I'll, I'll get to you guys in just a moment here, but all you got to do is just hold something. Can you guys hold something for a minute? Um, so just to kind of, before we get into the demonstration, um, when I married my wife, every other female relationship to me changes, right? Like when I was 24, 25 before I met my wife, then, then every, every um, female around the age that I was was technically, not always, but technically a potential marriage partner. Now, I know I just made all your friendships awkward when I say that, but, um, but, but that's, that's reality, right? But when I married my wife, my relationship to every other female on the face of the earth, it changed. They are no longer a potential marriage partner to Dave, not anymore. And in the same way, whenever you become a Christian, your relationship to sin dramatically changes. It shifts. I want to show you this morning how this plays out in life. So I got three guys up here. You guys doing okay? He is dressed way better than the rest of you guys up here. <laughs> I love it. Um, can I borrow? I, I'm doing a wedding in about a month. Can I borrow one of your suits? Only one you have? Can I borrow? That's a nice. I like that. Um, I need to borrow a suit. I need to buy myself a suit. It's about time. Uh, so I'm going to give these guys a sign to hold. And um, which one do you guys think is, looks the most evil up here? Weston? All right, so you're going to hold the King Sin sign. Hold that up. It's right in front of your chest there. They know who you are. And then who looks the second most wicked? Oh, wow. You're going to be, you're going to hold this one, Sin Country, all right? And then um, we're going to, uh, I guess, since you're the best dressed guy here, um, yes, you're going to be King Grace, all right? So here's what we're going to do. Um, I've got a rope here, and this is not a trap. Don't worry about it. Um, sin Country, you're going to stand inside this little circle. This is the boundary of Sin Country. This is Sin Country, all right? Now, since... Weston is King Sin, and he rules over Sin Country. He's going to jump in there with you. So you guys can get nice and cozy in there. There you go. So this is King Sin reigning over uh, Sin Country. So this, this kind of represents just a person, right? This is a person, and, um, and this is the place where King Sin rules and reigns over Sin Country. This is where we all live. In fact, um, we're all born this way, to quote Lady Gaga, not in that way, but in this way. We're all born into sin, and, uh, and so King Sin is ruling over sin country. And then um, this man here, this man Carter, he becomes a Christian. And, and so now, so now uh, King Sin no longer reigns. King Sin is booted out, and now King Grace comes in. King Grace rules over sin country, and sin country now becomes something called Grace Country. And so King Grace is now ruling and reigning over, uh, over Grace Country. And um, so the relationship to sin shifts once you become a Christian. Now, it does not mean you never sin or don't struggle with sin. Because here's what happens. Let's, let's put uh, King Sin over here. Um, so this is King Sin. And what can happen and what does happen in our lives is that, is that, is that King Sin can still have influence and cause him to struggle, even though he's a Christian, right? 
he's like a guerrilla warfare out in the bush, like causing havoc, wreaking havoc on this man's soul. This is what can happen when you're, when you're a Christian, right? And uh, so, so this is what could happen. The relationship changes, but because here's what happens. Even though King Sin is no longer king, sometimes we act like he is. And we live under his, you hear his voice, you hear the influence, and you struggle. And that's going to be the struggle until the day you die. So your relationship with sin shifts and changes, but you never stop struggling with sin. You might go through times where he wreaks havoc. You might go through times where he just is really seeming like he's being victorious. It's going to seem like he's got the position of King Grace, but he doesn't have the position of King Grace because Romans 5.20 tells us that you are, grace is what reigns. You are no longer under the reign of sin. And Romans 6 tells us the same thing. You go through times where you struggle, but King Sin no longer reigns once you and I come to know Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys stand there awkwardly for just a moment while I do some more quotes on the screen here. Um, So you and I don't become free through a technique. Romans chapter 6 is pretty clear. It's this connection to Jesus. We become free through a person. We don't become free through some method or I've got to get my life together and do this and do that. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But you don't become dead to sin. The initial death to sin doesn't happen through a technique. It happens through a person. Don't ever forget this. Don't ever lose sight of this. Because if you're not careful, you'll just instantly fall into moralism and a technique. Well, I got I to gotta fix this. I got to fix that. And you forget to know it's Jesus. It's your connection to Jesus. Your united life with him is what puts sin to death. He puts it to death. That's your positional standing before him. And now there are some responsibilities that you have once that truth is established in your life. But sin is no longer, sin is your enemy, but it is no longer your master, to quote Colin Smith. After Christ you no longer have to obey sin. So before Christ, before Christ comes into your life, all you did was sin, 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 no matter what. That's all you did. Exactly. But after Christ, you no longer have to obey sin. Sin is your enemy, but it is no longer your master. And if you understand that your relationship to sin has changed, then you're not going to ask the question of verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Let's give these guys a hand for helping us out. We appreciate it. You can keep your sign if you want. Keep your sign. Here's another way to say it. Look at the screen here. Take the case. This is a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Take the case of those poor slaves in the U.S. many years ago. There they were in a condition of slavery. Then the American Civil War came. And as a result of that war, slavery was abolished in the U.S. But what had actually happened But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands of times, in their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it, and when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and to tremble and to wonder 
whether they were going to be sold. Next slide. You can still be a slave experientially, even when you are no longer a slave legally. Whatever you may feel, whatever your experience may be, God tells us here through his word that if we are in Christ, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer under the reign and rule of sin. And if I fall into sin as I do, it is simply because I do not realize who I am. Realize it and reckon it. When you and I struggle with sin, we're listening to the old slave master. This is what the struggle with sin looks like. This is why in verse 11 he says, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Paul says you are dead to sin, so now it's time to live like it. You know, when I do weddings, I'm actually doing a wedding in about a month. Courtney's cousin is getting married. I'm doing the wedding. And when I say the the most powerful part, the, the pastor feels really powerful at the very end of the wedding when he's allowed to stand up and say these words. Something like, by the power vested in me, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And I really wish I had some lightning that could just like come out and just like make it dramatic, but I don't. It's just words. But here's what I'm doing when I say that. I am declaring them husband and wife. I am declaring them married. And I heard a preacher one time here at TBC say this phrase. He said, when I say that phrase, I declare you husband and wife. It's now time for them to become what they already are. The rest of their life is them becoming what they already are. And this is the same thing with us in Christ. You now get to, in this, in this marriage with Christ, so to speak, you get to become what you already are. So you are dead to sin. Now you get to live like it. You're dead to sin. Now you get to become what you already are. He declares it as true. Now you get to become that for the rest of your life. And it can be a struggle, just like marriage can be a struggle. But you get to live it out for the rest of your life. And so God declares us dead to sin. And so um, the question is, is it possible for a married woman or a married man to still live like a single person? Yeah, they do. They do all the time. But is it possible for someone to be set free and still live like a slave? This is why in verse 12, look at verse 12, Paul says these words. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. One of the ways in which you and I try to defeat sin, I think sometimes, we try to just, it's, just, it's the just say no method. It's the just say no method. And I want to be real clear. Verse 14 says, present yourselves to God. You guys know uh, Nancy Reagan, wife of Ronald Reagan, former president? She passed away a couple weeks ago. And in, back in the 80s, she was known for coining this phrase, or at least being a part of the campaign. It was the just say no to drugs campaign back in the early 80s. Um, now they just say, just say legalize, but that's a different story. But there was a time when we thought drugs were bad. We knew drugs were bad, and everyone thought they were bad. Um, and we still think that, at least I do, but that's a different story. Um, but she would just, it was just, just say no, like just say no to drugs. And this is the method in which many of us try with sin, like just say no to sin. But there's something else in verse 14. Look back at verse 14. Verse 14. 
Because in verse 14, what's described is not just a just say no, just avoid sin, but it is a present yourselves to God. Present yourself to him. And I wanted to unpack this more, but I'm running out of time. I want to close up fairly, fairly quickly this morning. Paul says something similarly in Galatians 5.16 when he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is a passage I share with every student I talk to about any kind of sin struggle. Defeating sin is not just about saying no to sin. It's about presenting yourselves to God. It is about walking by the Spirit. In fact, I would bet money on this. Whatever sin struggle that you have in your life right now, or have had in the past, the real strong, powerful sin struggles that we all know exist, I would guess that for many of you, when you've been on a mission trip or you've been doing impact for two weeks or you've been doing something where you're, you are actively presenting yourself to be used by God or you are walking intentionally by his spirit, I would bet money that some of those sin struggles begin to fade to the background just a bit when you're presenting yourself to him. Now, they don't completely go away, but I would bet that as you're doing that and living out that way, I would bet that the power is lessened. You don't sense sin reigning over you as much because you're dead to sin. This is what it means to present yourself to him, to walk by his spirit. And this is a fight. Last quote I want to give you and we'll close up. Precisely because we are free from sin, we have to fight against it. This means that you get involved in mission. You get involved in community because this is what it means to walk by the Spirit and present yourselves to him. I remind you that I'm going through Joshua right now in my own time just in the Word. And what sticks out to me is this. God gives the Israelites the promised land. He says, I'm going to give you this promised land. Now fight for it. And this is a picture of what it means to walk with Jesus. God declares you dead to sin. Now fight for it. Now walk in it. Now struggle in it. Present yourselves to him and walk by the Spirit. Go ahead and close up with your last few questions at your tables.